Hey, this is Katie. This is Writeability. I'm here with Chris Lynch. Christina, you want to introduce yourself? Hello. I'm Christina Lynch. I am a professor of English. So we're here today to talk about reading scholarly or academic articles. Uh But before we jump into all the things I think we need to define, Chris, when I said this topic, you immediately told me I want to do that one because I'm scared. I want to know why. (laughs) So this goes back to my days in college when there were different tracks for English majors. One of the tracks was literary criticism and you had to read a lot of scholarly articles. I did a course in every other area, but not, (laughs) not in that one because I was so intimidated by them. But also my fear of them kind of turned towards anger because I felt they were really esoteric. They were so specialized trying to to phrase this in a family-friendly way, they were so specialized as to be absurd. Mm. You know, you could parody them, the importance of the teacup in Jane Austen. Like they were so hyper-specialized, but now I'm back in academia and oh boy, I have to confront scholarly articles again. And I do see them in a different light. The reason that I wanted to talk to you and the thing that I was thinking about at three in the morning was that in our culture right now, there's a little bit of a backlash against specialized knowledge and expertise. So I wanted to talk to you because I think we need to push back against the backlash, right? Like we need to recognize expertise. The other day I had tree trimmers here. They accidentally ran over my water main. Oh, I had visions of calling out the emergency plumber and all of that. And he said, I can fix this. And he disappeared for about 15 minutes when I thought I'm never going to see that guy again. (laughs) And he returned with exactly what he needed. The the little saw, the two kinds of glue, the several pieces of PVC. And he proceeded to fix the entire thing. While watching him, there was a kind of PVC glue that was a two-step process. So there were two jars And I thought, wow, like there's a scholarly article out there because people study that. Like specialized professions need to study in specialized ways. There's a journal, I'm sure, about plumbing. That seems really esoteric to me until my water main breaks. (laughs) And then I'm incredibly grateful for that expertise. Yes. Okay. That was a beautiful, I think, introduction to all that's at stake. I want to step back and just define a few things. We're saying scholarly article. Sometimes people also say academic article. What does that mean? I'm kind of using them interchangeably. For me, I'm talking about a peer-reviewed article in a specialized journal. So you, you know, are in- doing the peer review implication. And peer review means that it's like reviewed by other people in the field with in the, field. Um, the same. Yeah. Interestingly, I've seen other people and in certain disciplines, they'll say that all scholarly aren't necessarily peer reviewed, but like scholarly yes. academic, for example, scholarly or academic books that are not necessarily go through the peer review process, but they can be like thought of at that same level. So that's one of those things to check with your teacher with. Like if they say, scholarly or academic, ask them, be like, okay, so must these be peer reviewed? So maybe we should say that scholarly is written for people 
in that particular field. When you're looking for scholarly, where do we find them? Do we find scholarly articles just normally anywhere on the internet? Like, is it specialized searching or? I strongly urge students to use the COS academic databases, but things will pop up on the databases. If, if you don't kind of mm-hmm. check the right filters, things You'll will get pop news up articles the- and stuff like that. Right? Yeah. Yes. A lot of things pop up. There's yeah. It's probably credible, but it might not be scholarly or academic. Right? Exactly. But no, I think that's, yeah, I think that's important to look at. I mean, to me, I encourage students to consider Google Scholar, there's always a lot. And I feel like it's a nice skill of something that you might be able to use after you graduate, right? Because you're going to lose yes. access to those databases. Exactly. Because um, like one of the things about scholarly or peer-reviewed articles or academic articles is that they're often very expensive to access yes. unless you can access through an institution. Yes. The school. So when we pay for databases, we're paying for access for you guys. Yes. Our library is paying for access. Your public library probably has access to some. As somebody who does research, I do research for the novels that I write. When I come across something that I want to read, there was something about it's really, really obscure. Again, super obscure stuff about like the impact of fascism on the polio horse race in Siena in the 1930s. There was an, you know, an academic article popped up and I wasn't able to access it through COS. So I had to pay about 35 bucks. It irritated me. <laughs> I would have been pissed. A hint for that though, on ResearchGate can like often request to the authors. It'll like send them an email. And a lot of the time they'll just send you what you ask for. Just Ooh, next time email that author. Know. Also, students, ask the librarians because the librarians do have access to some other databases and we'll pull it for you. So I think we've defined most things. Yeah. What's an academic journal? I think that's another word we're throwing around. By academic journal, I mean one that is published usually in, in association with a university. Yes. It's a periodical, right? It's like a magazine, but it's not a magazine. It's written for specialists in a field by specialists in the field. And we talked a little about the peer review process, but the stuff in here is vetted more than anything else you might see. Yeah. Um, So there's like the Jane Austen quarterly that's going to come out of, I don't know, the University of Pittsburgh. I'm making up random names here to illustrate what I mean. And that would be different than the Jane Austen fan club that is not people in academia. Yeah. And that, that is the difference, right? It's who's publishing it. Like we're too, I think we're both thinking about like the literary versions about Jane Austen and stuff like that. Things like medical research and stuff like that come out in these same forms. And again, in very specialized journals often. Yeah. And again, I think that gets back to the idea of expertise. And for me, I'm reminded of when the pandemic started, there were about five people in the U.S. who were super experts in the coronavirus. And I remember one of them getting interviewed saying like, wow, I never thought I would be on the front page of the New York Times. And and that's when that expertise pays off. Right. And I mean, I think that reminds me of a question I have for when I get to talk to someone about research, which is like when we're talking about research and people like that, the coronavirus specialist, we mean something very different than what you do in school or what you do when you want to know about something. I think that like 
keep using vaccine metaphors and stuff, but like when someone <laughs> says they researched the vaccine, if it's a, a lay person, if it's me or you, it means they read some articles on the internet, yes. right? But when a scientist says they researched the vaccine and they have a scholarly article published about it, it means that they did very specialized testing in very specialized conditions that again, as an English person, I only half understand. Scholarly journals are the places those results are published. So yes. like one thing that I saw happen a lot during the pandemic is we would see articles, like a New York Times article being like, this hasn't been peer reviewed yet, but here's what's coming. And like, yes. I would know to take that with a grain of salt because it meant that, okay, one scientist is finding these findings, but have other people agreed on this yet? This is also becoming a podcast episode about credibility, I think. Yeah, they really do intersect. So, okay, let's say we're researching. I think the first thing that I find with students and scholarly articles is actually picking which ones they want to read. I feel like that's the first hurdle that needs to be crossed. But let's say you search something, your search terms are perfect, and there's like 87 articles, right? Yeah. Do you just have to read all 800 pages or how do you start deciding which ones you want to read? So I think that's a great question. And this comes up every semester with almost every English one student. I send them to the databases. Then the anxiety begins because as you say, well, either they get no, no results or one or two results or 870. If you're getting too many results, limit, right? Like look at your limiters. One of the easiest limiters is date. If you are writing about mental health in college students and you're getting 871 results, you might want to look at your date limiter and make it the last two years. It depends a lot on your topic. If you are looking at... I mean, the Jane Austen, I think, is a good example. Jane Austen's a great example. So date limits don't matter as much, right? Date limits don't matter, but you might want to do US only. Look at your keywords and look at the date range. Make sure that, you know, there's peer reviewed, non peer reviewed. So you can check and uncheck that box. That helps. So let's say you find the one you want to read, you think you need want to read, or you find a bunch, like maybe five you want to read. Do you? just sit there and read the whole thing? Do you look at different parts of it? The bad thing about academic articles is that sometimes they're quite long. They might be 35 or 50 pages long. The really, really good news is there's an abstract at the top. (laughs) And so, yeah, an abstract is a little summary, guys. It's just like, this is what it's about. So before I commit to reading an article, when in that process, when I'm finding articles, I'm often reading those abstracts, those little summaries to like help me determine whether this one's relevant or if it's too specialized. Just a tip though, that abstract is not ever the whole article. Your scholarly article, probably at least 10 pages, right? Like it's not going to be, yeah, yeah, it's going to be a PDF. So just watch out for that. One more thing about the abstract is when you read the abstract, there's a really important question to ask yourself. Do you understand it? A lot of people feel some shame if they don't understand it. And that kind of goes back to my own experience as a college student. 
So I really, really want to emphasize that there is no shame in not understanding an academic article, particularly if it's medical, if it's mathematical. These are very specialized areas. And it is really a specialized language. And I mean, I personally still have some like, not resentment, but I really do question that. I really feel like occasionally the language choices just gatekeep. Sometimes, obviously, like with medicine, like you have to use the terminology, yes. you have to use organ names. And, but like, at least in English, sometimes I'm just like, there are easy ways to say this. It ends yeah. up sounding pretentious and it's like- very pretentious. Leaving out audience. So then, okay, so you, you read the abstract, you understand it, you've decided to read it. Let's say you ran across an article, different areas. There's methods, there's introduction there's results discussion like a sciencey one right do you yeah. read all of those Chris or do you kind of jump around give me a topic I'm gonna do it live on the air I mean plumbing but I was having a hard time it was all about like fecal matter and stuff so I don't know if we want to discuss <laughs> that right now well let's do mental health and college students so I got 19,473 results So the first thing I'm going to do is full text, and that takes it down to 9,000. Then I'm going to do 2020 to 2022. So that takes it down to 1,500. I'm going to do United States. And that takes it down to 392. Peer-reviewed takes me to 364. Do California. Do community college. We could get even more. Takes me to 33. I think that's enough to look through. 33 is pretty good. So the first one is sleepless in school, the role of social determinants in sleep health among college students. So I'm still on the search page. This is from the Journal of American College Health. Oh, I'm going to stop right there. I had yeah. to Google social determinants. Do I just throw that out because I didn't know that term or was Googling good? That, I think that's my like, don't just throw out the abstract immediately kind of thing. Exactly. Like, it's easily understood. But then if you go to the next one, so relationships between psychometrically distinct, brief, multidimensional measure of religiousness, spirituality, BMMRS factors and mental health among U.S. college students. I'm throwing that one out. Psychometrically distinct, brief, multidimensional measure. I'm already, I'm lost. Third one, physical and mental health impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic among college students who are undocumented or have undocumented parents. I'm interested. I understand all of the words in the title. I like to point out as we're looking at those is like that first one and third one also narrowed our topic even more. You're not going to find general broad information, right? In scholarly Uh or academic articles. That last one is specifically about undocumented people's experiences, which would be a really good way to have some intersectionality in a paper, right? Like if you're talking about it broadly, like make sure you talk about the specific experiences of that group and it could be cool. And there's a little icon on the left that tells me it's from an academic journal, So we haven't even gotten to the abstract yet. And the titles are really helping us narrow down. So I'm going to click on the PDF full text and it tells me it's a research article. It's open access. So it's got three authors. And I just wanted to remind people that the credentials of these people 
are in the footnotes. It gives you the emails and it gives you their Department of Health Society and Behavior University of California, Irvine. When you go to write about this article, you are going to have to tell us who these authors are and what their credentials are. Then I've got an abstract, which is delightfully brief. It's delightfully brief. And that tells me whether it's, this is only an 11 page scholarly article, so it's not too long. Most more, I would say, science-based academic articles are researched, right? So not that literary ones are not researched, but they're researched in a different way. They Usually a literary scholarly article is not using human subjects. I would love to read the one that did, though. (laughs) I don't know what that would look like. Like the effects of Jane Austen. Exactly. That would be like on board college students who hate Jane Austen. So they have have backgrounds, methods, results, and then there's a discussion. I know that I often skip methods when I'm reading something. Do you skip methods? I scan it. I don't, but I don't skip methods because I want to know if this is actually like a a well- grounded piece of research or not. Gotcha. I guess I've done that before. Sometimes I like go back up. Maybe it's, maybe it's not in the order where I like understand what they did. And then I'm like, okay, but how many students and at what schools did they do the study? And then they'll be like, Oh, we only did this at stu- with students at Stanford and Harvard or yeah. whatever. And I'm and like, okay, so that students. doesn't apply. Yeah, yeah exactly. So two sections and at these two schools. And I'm like, okay, that doesn't apply. Like yeah. that's not a big enough sample size and all of that. But that that is what's discussed in methods is like, what did this study look like? And then the results are when they like detail, okay, this is what we found when we did this thing. And then the discussions when they get to actually talk about it. Yeah. And I think this gets back to, for students at COS, understanding what expertise means. When you read in a, you know, regular for general public article, college students suffered depression during the pandemic. Where does that information come from? This is the kind of study that it comes from. Credibility means tracing facts that are presented to the public that are impacting on public decision-making, how money is spent, that these come out of legitimate research. People are genuinely dedicating their careers to finding out what's true and what isn't. And I often go back and try to find these articles when I read something in like a newspaper article or something like that, when they're like, studies show, blah, blah, blah. Like, even if it's just random things, like I saw something the other day that was like, arguing that like I think it was 10% of like men cheat on their their pregnant wives and I was like that seems way too high so I started like digging into databases to see what studies they were looking at who were they talking to yes and like it was poll results but it was like from a website that like was kind of like confirmation biasy. Like if you were on that website, I can't remember exactly what it is. Like it would make more sense that you were cheating on your wife if that like like, makes sense because I was just like, that's too high. So learning how to do that research and so just being like, oh, that is a fact that I now know. Is it credible? How big was the sample size? How did they figure it out? And are the results being blown out of proportion? Because Mm -hmm. so often the public press will take a data point from a study and completely misinterpret it and blow it out of proportion. And when you go back and look at the actual study, you think that isn't what, 
that was not, not what, what this is saying, right? <laughs> and sometimes that will even happen within their own article. Like the title will be like, ah, everyone's going to die or whatever. Right. Like, and then you start reading it and you're like, yeah, we're all going to die eventually. Like, it's not like actually saying we're dying tomorrow. <laughs> so the, the next step that I would do would be to scroll down to the conclusion. I'm sort of a, a conclusion junkie. This one has a lot of charts and graphs that are going to be harder for me as somebody who is not a statistician. So I'm going to go down to the written conclusion, which in this case is called discussion. I'm going to put that through the can I understand it test. So before I'm going to use this source in my essay, I want to make sure that I understand the conclusion because when I introduce this into a paragraph, I'm going to want to name the authors and their credentials. Of course, I'm going to name the article and the journal that it's published in. And I'm going to want to summarize it, right? Because my readers are not going to have read this. I want to be able to write an accurate and brief summary of this article in my own words. And that means I have to have understood it. So I'm And I gonna, think yeah. there's a good distinction I want to make there. Like one thing I would notice is that Chris is doing that from the conclusion or discussion, not from the background. And this is something I see students do a lot. And I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but they'll kind of summarize the background. But that first thing's really just a lit review. It's telling you this is the situation that we're entering into. It's actually closer to what your paper might sound like. Ultimately, they're giving us the conversation and then saying, and then this is what we did, our research. I will say that is a good place to find other sources, however. Yeah, no, definitely. it's, It's the conclusion. And I find myself when I'm reading student essays, they'll say like, so-and-so did a study on, you know, mental health and college students during the pandemic. There'll be sort of one quote. I'll say, what did the study find? Don't tell me about a study and not tell me what its conclusions. And that might be a little different than how you quote other things. You don't always just give us the argument, but when you're quoting a study as evidence, you got to tell us what they're arguing, what they found. Yeah. And then, so my next step would be, I'm a huge fan of the annotation. So if I'm writing an essay and, and at this point I have read the conclusion and I feel like I understand it, I'm going to write a super quick annotation. I'm going to email this on the COS database. You can email this article to yourself so that you have a copy of it, but I'm not just going to do that because When I go to write this essay three days or a week from now, hopefully not 15 minutes from now, I'm not going to want to reread every word of the article again. So I'm going to send this to myself with a three to five sentence summary of it, not cut and pasted from the article, because again, I won't remember it. If I actually use the mental energy to summarize it in my own words, it's going to be in my brain. You do like an annotated bibliography via email. Wow, yeah. Interesting. And then I will make a note to myself that says in my essay, I'm going to use this, you know, in a paragraph about blank, or I'm going to use this to introduce the idea of blank, or this is the counter argument. Sometimes students will read like one article and stop there. And it's like, wait a second, let's go back 
to the results because there might be three or four more articles that are way better suited to my essay. So yeah, doing I'm sort of the lateral reading thing, right? Reading a bunch of things about the same topic and not exactly. Just so I'm going to scroll through. We only have 33. So I'm definitely going to scroll. The other thing about research is you want to stay open. So you mm. might start out with a thesis that, you know, the pandemic didn't have a huge effect on the mental health of college students. And as you are scrolling through, you know, 40 of the articles are saying that it did and 10 are saying that it didn't like it's I think students want definitive answers. It's important to look at all the research that's being done, as you were saying, like you're doing your own little research review and making sure that your essay is truthful. And you can have a complex like argument that like, I know we're like, oh, have an argument, pick a side. But um, for example, I saw a really interesting article recently that I saved and have not read yet, but it's scholarly and peer reviewed. And it was talking about how low income students grades actually went up during the pandemic. You could say something like, um, while overall grades went up during the pandemic, students still suffered in these ways and we have to do better in these ways, right? And yeah. then you could still acknowledge, hey, this is a thing that happened. Grades went up, but students felt shittier. <laughs> so like, yes. and it's, so you don't have to ignore that piece of evidence that seems to contradict what you're saying. Like yes. There's often a way to present that nuance. Don't fear the complexity. It's better and- to read anyway, and more honest to what the world is, right? Exactly. 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 And, and that's, you know, that is what we want. We come to college to learn and grow and learning and growing means you change your mind as you get new information. This is a long one, Chris. It's so long, right? (laughs) Any, any more thoughts? It's as long as an academic article. Oh my God. I'm going to have so much editing to do. Yeah, I mean, I think the the major takeaways are don't be afraid of academic articles. Try not to feel bad if it's too specialized for you. Recognize the value of expertise. And the big one is ask a librarian. So the librarians are the great interpreters for the rest of us of these academic databases and academic articles. And they may be able to direct you to another source on this. I feel like I'm always ending these with like, there are resources, but yes, with research in particular, a librarian can be really helpful, especially yeah, in those moments when you're not finding what you want to find because yeah, like academic databases can be finicky. Like they're so frustrating and annoying, super annoying and frustrating. And our librarians know how to use them (laughs) better than we do sometimes. Don't be afraid of the academic databases. Don't be afraid of scholarly articles dip your toe. know it's trial and error too right like you're gonna have to wade through a lot of mess good I think like writing like if you're good searching it doesn't mean that the first thing that pops up is that you searched perfectly and here it is here's the golden article it's it's a messy process research is messy yes research is messy and time consuming yes okay last question then that I always ask what are you learning right now <laughs> I, I love hearing what people are learning in their lives they're so interesting I'm learning a lot. That's a, 
That's a really good question. I'm waiting to hear back about whether a publisher is going to buy this book. So usually I'm learning a lot about whatever I'm writing about. And it's been interesting to be on on an intellectual break. So I've been learning about spiritual big picture questions through longer, intense conversations with friends. Oh, that's so, wonderful. Yeah, it's 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 a really nice moment. Unfortunately, tomorrow, sometime in the middle of the day, I'm going to find out what changes I need to make to the book, which will direct my focus back to research about World War II. Yeah, so, yeah. Oh, cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This is going to be a fun episode. Thank you for being here and guys, email me if you need me, but thank you all for listening. All righty.